Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Thank you for being back on the podcast. I think the last time you were on was like four or five years ago at this point, right? Yeah, I think it was in 2017 when the last book, oh book came God. out. Yeah, that's time goes way too fast. Yeah. It does, yeah, and it's it's good to talk to you. I mean, <clears throat> you too. So much has happened since then, and things have changed, but you know they're kind of the same in a way. So yeah, it's weird how that works. So so yeah, maybe maybe just update us. I know the well, I talked to you when when your last book came out about journeys in pagan Europe, or excuse me, journeys in the Kali Yuga, and you've put out a new book called holy europe but it's not out in english yet it hopefully it's coming out but this is like caused a lot i mean this has been a big hit in in europe from what i understand yeah it's it's been uh, quite successful <clears throat> um in terms of the attention that it's it's gotten it's it took me many years to write that book like f sort of four years i think i wrote a you know, devoted most of my time to writing the book. So it was a huge amount of work and a lot of personal sacrifice. I mean, there's no, there's no real benefit to writing a book for four years, as you know, like the, it's not, doesn't make any sense. And, um, but you know, there's, you don't live off of benefit or gain, you know, like you live off something else. And this has been sort of my life's work and calling to, express something which I find really uh, important and of central significance to my country and to Europeans at large. And uh, yeah, so, so I wrote that book and, and that came out in Finland um, 2020 in uh, uh, December. So just like before the start of 21. And yeah, it was reviewed by, you know, the biggest newspaper, devoted a whole sort of a section to it and gave it a favorable review and stuff. So I, w I was actually quite surprised by how positive the reaction was because it, it is, it still has a lot of uh, sort of uh, things in there which might cause controversy and stuff, but it's surprisingly been sort of appreciated by all of these uh, different um, polarities, which is what I intended, is what I wanted it to, to not just be some niche book in some little, you know, sort of um, 
little group of people, but to sort of reach a wider audience. Because I do believe that the spiritual tradition is the one thing that is sort of able to bridge the gap and connect people on some higher level than mere, you know, political uh, positions or ideologies or these things yeah. which ultimately, you know, separate us. So that's really true. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And that's, the, that's what um, I was trying to aim for that kind of landscape, you know, where we would be united with people in a way. Yeah, it's I, as you were saying that. I mean, that is something really beautiful about spirituality. People definitely get angry whenever I make things political, but spiritual because spirituality unifies every, every people from all ends of the political spectrum. And I don't think there's very many other things like that, like music, to some extent, depending on the music, nature. You know, there's not a whole lot like that. But what was your so? What was your for people who have not been able to read it? or either because they haven't got a hold of it or they just there's not an english translation yet what was your kind of central thesis for this book and what were you trying to get across to people well it's kind of like in a way it's a continuation of the first book journeys in the kali yuga because the journeys in the kali yuga really ends in in me kind of returning to my homeland and trying to seek the same thing that I found in India, which was a, a living spiritual tradition, I was trying to look for, for signs of that or markers of that or remnants of that here in what, I, what is my home, which is Finland and to a larger extent Europe. And it's, it's, um, in a way, it's similar to the first book. It's travel, it's, it's travel writing. I mean, it, it sort of... It's my personal uh, journey to a lot of these places. I traveled through nine different sort of uh, branches of the European world tree. So it's nine different cultures, localities, or sort of cultural areas. And uh, I traveled to these places and I visit holy sites, both Christian and pre-Christian or pagan, and, uh, and meet people and have experiences and then i tell of the significance of those places so it's like historical you know religious spiritual um sometimes artistic sort of content and then it has this sort of other level where where i'm trying to reach you know sort of a, the the essence of it or and also like the spirit of our time so it's 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 a book on many levels, but I am trying to approach the sort of spiritual center, you know, the axis mundi or the world tree, which would be the uniting thing of, of these traditions, these sort of separate traditions in Europe. And so I'm trying to find what is, what is the commonality in all these things? Because on my journeys, I've always f found it. I've, I found it in people, with people, at, at places. I found sort of a commonality. And so... Um, I'm, I've tried to find what that commonality or what that common thing is and, uh, and point to it. And so I don't know if I've, you know, the, the thing in, in Europe is that we don't really have you know, they're, they're either very um, sort of broken or scattered or then they're veining like christianity is mm. so they're all the we're, we're sort of i'm trying to point towards something you know a, a spiritual center 
So what did you, what did, what did you, in terms of what, what did you find? I mean, what, what did you feel that the commonality was or because that's something I've tried to figure out quite a lot as well, because like you said, there is no living spiritual or there's a hard, perhaps hard to find living spiritual tradition. And I think we talked about this on the last podcast and there's, you know, the overlay of Christianity and then you get things like the Western esoteric tradition, which at the end of the day are also the overlay of Christianity. So yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm just curious what you conclusions you came to on that. Well, I think despite our differences and despite different languages and sort of cultural customs, I think on a deeper level, we, we share a sort of common spiritual outlook or understanding, very broadly speaking. I think we have a same way to approach the holy which manifests both in practical terms. It manifests in the holy places that we have throughout Europe, which are, you know, ranging from natural uh, shrines, sanctuaries, to temples, ancient temples, to churches. And the way that those manifest in physical localities and the way that Europeans approach those tends to be very similar. Like there are similar ways that you approach the holy throughout Europe. And, and like various similarities in how the sacred or the holy is sort of apprehended or how it's viewed. And um, I mean, I go into this in great detail in the, the, especially in the final chapter of my book, uh, where I sort of laid out what these comedy, commonalities are. But I do think that we are, you know, we're part of the same family tree of divinities. And Europe has never been, you know, like these these countries that we have now, they're they're nothing very old in, in the sense that, you know, the people of Europe have been um, influencing each other a lot. So like in, in a cultural area, like, like in a little place like Finland, where I live, there's a clear influence that goes both ways with the Germanic people, with the Baltic people, and with the Slavic people. And... All of these people, for instance, in, in Northern Europe, have a, lot of, have a lot more in common with each other spiritually, even though they have different languages and things, than they have apart. And I'm sort of trying to point to that commonality and to, to make people realize that we do have, you know, Europe is a, a holy entity in a way. And if people... I think it's very, very, very important because I think that's the central thing that Europe has has lost in this day and age is its soul. And uh, yeah, that this is, I mean, this is kind of difficult to talk about because this is all, you know, like Ernst Hemingway said that the writer doesn't talk, but he writes, you know, so it's like, right. <laughs> it's well. difficult to, to, it's like a 400 page, 500 page book. So it's like, it's got a lot in there. Right. Well, I think I've, I mean, it's, just such important work. And I think I've said to you on social media, it's like, you know, it's, it's strike. I mean, it strikes me as singularly important work and particularly for now. And I think that, you know, I mean, when I really think about it, when we really sit down and think about what the, whatever this moment, you know, the post theosophical moment is, it's just a blip in history since 1875 or, even more specifically, the neo-pagan revival since the '60s, which we're we're the inher- you know we're the inheritors of in a sense. I mean, the baby boomers started it, but we're kind of inheriting it and trying to make it into something more substantial, perhaps. 
is that I think, you know, cultures all over the world are trying to recover their own sense of themselves. And we can talk about that in relation to post-colonialism and things like that. But the thing that people don't understand is that post-colonialism applies not only to, let's say, the non-European world, but it also applies to Europe in the sense that Europe was also colonized earlier by, you know, as I, as I call him, desert god, you know. And, you know, the, the, the broad struggle of everybody is against the the baneful influence of desert God or Jehovah, Jehovah or the Demiurge or whatever we want to say metaphorically and colorfully. And that recovery of self that, you know, everyone's ancestry and sense of who they are and roots in the truest sense connection to the past was severed. And then that's, and then people who are severed from their past can be controlled. And I always think about, the story of Charlemagne cutting down the Ermensoul in, in Germany and forcing everyone to watch, you know, of, of literally cutting, the, cutting down the sacred trees and forcing people to watch as, as you know, the, the alien desert God cult essentially took over their realities. So, and I think this is something important to understand that yes, spirituality can be something that you create. It can be a personal thing, but it's also beyond personal. It's also a very, critically critical conversation with ancestors and that's i think a really powerful moment for people when they realize they go from realizing oh i'm just a really strange person to actually i'm doing the exact same thing my ancestors were and this isn't just coming out of nowhere and it is post-colonial in the deepest sense so and people don't understand that europe is in the same situation so i think that what you're doing is just you know absolutely critical work well thank you and and what you mentioned about charlemagne cutting down the irminsul yeah i mean this is one thing that i write about extensively in in a chapter of my book this cutting down of the the tree that happened and what the irminsul actually was now the irminsul is like for for the listeners this is a this is a, a sort of word that is applied to a sort of pillar that's connected with um with the, the Germanic people and um, and the, it was kind of like it's thought to have been kind of a totem for a a tribe, but it, it usually represents the sort of the highest god or the central sort of the center of those people's world worlds. And you know, different tribes would have different representations of the Irmin soul. So it wasn't always a tree in the literal sense sometimes it would be a god pillar out of wood and that's really sort of the the one of the commonalities in all of these european spiritual traditions is this vertical pillar which all of the european traditions have at their center is a big oak or a big you know tree a world tree and that's really the the commonality between all this and the the world tree is marking this sort of spirit the spiritual axis which holds it all together which is this sort of cohesive power of order which orients people to like around this sacred reality and so when the sacred reality is is cut down or broken or replaced with another one you will have a lot of uh of problems and at the same time, you know, I, I have tried to be fair 
and not be, you know, anti-Christian or something in this book, because the whole of Europe is based on this tension between Christianity and paganism. Mm. And, you know, that th this is really like the essence of Western civilization is this, this tension between those two forces, if you look culturally, because they permeate everything of Europe. Is, is sort of the, the history, the warring history of the tension between those two sort of impulses. And so I've tried to sort of uh, embrace both in a way, you know, which is difficult for me because, you know, honestly, I'm not a very Christian person, but the, Christianity also absorbs so many aspects of paganism, you know, the yearly celebrations of Christianity and the saints and all these things. Like, oh, there's so much in Christianity which is all over pagan, you know, you know, wise to do that because they understood that they, this would never, they would be able to sort of get rooted in a culture if they did not sort of uh, adopt its most important things or essential aspects into it. So I'm not trying to be anti-Christian. I'm trying to sort of recognize the spiritual landscape. That's why there's also at the, in, on the cover of my book is this sort of uh, tree, which has a sun wheel in the or sun cross in the center, and it's a, a it's an uh, a tree on top of a mountain, and that symbol right there sort of represents this this union also uh, of Christianity and paganism mm. because the, this sort of sun cross is both a pagan and a Christian motif, and all often those things and traditions also you know, overlap. It wasn't always just a warring, a war, you know, against the pagans or something. It was Christianity and paganism, for instance, in Finland, they coexisted for a long time. And Christianity influenced, you know, the, the, the sort of folkish tradition here and stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to be fair and, and, uh, because I don't, I don't believe that some sort of return to some primal paganism is really possible. Like these, these things can only be given new life in a new form or in a new essence in some way. You know what I mean? It's and um, and so, and I'm also trying to be honest. Like you, you can't really like a lot of people nowadays. They'll sort of adopt a spiritual tradition or a path based on what they think is like politically mm -hmm. valid or something, or, mm -hmm. or they they have these sort of external motivations to choose something that's internal and you cannot do that you, you still have to be even if there's not a single other person on planet earth who's you know <laughs> it's like you know feel feels spiritually like you do you still have to follow your own inner impulse you know do more do more gloom you know like you, you you still have to sort of uh be true to yourself and you can't choose a spiritual tradition because it's it's uh you know got to be viable in the future or something that's really interesting. I, it's really interesting to hear you say that because just because that's something that I haven't been able to reconcile in myself in the sense that I go back, you know, back and forth from trying to embrace a completely pagan conception of things to, you know, Christianity, Kabbalah, the Western esoteric tradition, you know, Sufism, like basically the, that, and, and I, I, but broadly speaking, you know, essentially Christianity and paganism, and I can't do it. I can't reconcile those things. And so it's actually, I, I can't figure it out. So, you know, other than just completely cutting one off, it kind of, 
it's it's actually just kind of reassuring to to hear you say that it's like well maybe it's just hardwired that way you know that's not really about me that's kind of is maybe that's genetically hardwired just from epigenetic history i mean i think you have to be able to sort of embrace both in a way you know i also it's it's also it's also been one thing that's been really interesting to me also on the pagan side and we're kind of talking about genetics and and now we know about from epigenetics that you know essentially everything that you do creatively affects your genetic code so so even genetics are a dialogue a creative dialogue with the past and the future so we get them but we also change them going forward and so you know our whole history is probably to some extent including traumas and things like that and aptitudes are recorded genetically and that's something that people really are just starting to get their head around but one thing that has really fascinated fascinated me recently is now that we have such a knowledge of genetics and post-human genome project and things like 23andme and things like that that we know that there actually is an indo-european genetic family that there's actually a real thing that includes not just europe but northern india and when i look at it from like i remember reading when i I was working on a editing a biography of brian geisen by john geiger many years ago and one of the things that geisen was always obsessed with was genetic groups and how they moved across the planet and how that essentially determined everything not just how they believed but their outlook and how they interacted with each other but in a really deep sense and so it's interesting to me to consider well if there actually is i forget the genetic designation for it but if there actually is a genetic family that includes europe and northern india well if you look at it that way european paganism and indian particularly northern indian paganism tantra they're very similar they're very they seem to and we you talked about one family of gods i mean if you look at there's even migration of gods between ancient greece and india there's a lot of evidence that for instance i think both sobek and ganesh possibly ganesh but definitely sobek were were or excuse me sobek is an egyptian god but th- those may have those two gods may have passed back and forth between india and and greece and we just know that in the ancient world everything was fluid so that has been really interesting to me and particularly in light of your work of looking at both of indian paganism and european paganism do you think that there's something to that in the sense that it may have just been one group of people across one geographic area i i I absolutely think that there's something to that now whether or not these these were a historical you know group or not i can't i'm not a historian so i can't really say on that i mean there are a lot of theories i don't know if you read alain daniel yeah i've read his writing on yoga but that's it like his yeah well he has he has a book called for instance um shiva and dionysus i think and a lot of his work is based on this idea that he thinks that there was a kind of religion that that extended to the West and the East, and that that um, you know Shiva and Dionysus were sort of different cultural manifestations of the same thing, and one survived in a way, and one didn't. And I absolutely think that there 
is a very strong connection between uh you know so-called hinduism sanatan dharma or or tantra or um or the indian esoteric tradition and european paganism and that's why i i went to india because i i sort of wanted to see how this paganism could sort of manifest in the modern world now one can argue if india is modern or not but but like in in at least in contemporary times how a paganism could you know still sort of exist and how it would look and i do find that that's the closest sort of representative of what european paganism had it survive would probably look like in some sense you know so i do i do think that there's a lot that can be learned simply from studying indian tradition also which you know to an extent i think mirrors a lot of uh, european paganism whether we are talking about you know classical sort of greco roman paganism or or you know the these sort of oldest southern strains of that or even even the ones that we have up up north because even between those there are clearly many similarities and i was also told as much when i was in india and in and in, of course i didn't when i was in india i was only part of one tradition and as you yourself know it's kind of in india it's like you kind of have to you know sort of choose you know perhaps one um one line or one path to walk, walk down on and mm-hmm. then sort of uh, that's your source for it and you can't sort of talk about everything but at least in in the tradition that i talked to with the gurus there they they seem to think that there was a a strong connection between the the northern european uh paganism and what they were doing that's really interesting and it, it just seems to be self-evident to me at this at least at this point in my life it didn't necessarily seem like that before when i didn't have a lot of experience but you know certainly other people have come to that conclusion and it just it makes a lot of sense and i think that it's probably for that reason that a lot of you know and actually when i when i realized that i stopped being kind of so let's say cynical about you know kind of western hippies who who take on the kind of indian persona or you know kind of do like the russell brand type thing where they kind of do this hindu devotee thing and i guess i was only cynical about that probably because it reminded me of things that i had done so i'll be fair about that but i when i thought about that i because previously i thought well you know if people are going to embrace spirituality why do they immediately have to go to another country and adopt a completely different cultural identity and start dressing differently and start wearing beads and be something other than what they are other than their own spiritual heritage but then i started to realize well may- maybe that's actually not what's happening maybe that's just the best place to go to recover a sense of what things were like maybe it's not a break at all from one's own tradition and i, I think that's probably true for both of us having such an intensive an intense experience in in india and with indian traditions here so that 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 was really interesting for me to think about in that sense yeah and i i think that there's i mean there's so much that 
And by the way, like I completely agree. And I, I was the same way before I went to India when I was younger. I thought, you know, when I saw people sort of turn to the East, I was sort of like, you know, why can't you find that here? And, you know, but of course it is very difficult to find it here. And, and I'm, I'm also less cynical towards people now that do that or have, the, have done that. And of course, to a certain extent, I've done it myself, mm. so I can't really like. Uh, yeah, I have too. Criticize so. other people. Well, we always criticize yeah, people so that like, remind us of ourselves. That's kind of what I was yeah. saying. So, you know. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's the the old Jungian thing, you know. How you like, you know, you hate the things about other people that mm-hmm. are essentially about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but but um, it, there's a there's an idea in Finnish tradition that you are, you know, your soul is composed of these three parts. And one of those parts is something that you is like a, um, it's sort of like a, a soul part which you inherit from your family, and that's reborn into the same sort of family line. And I think that expresses the this idea that you know there's so much that you inherit in terms of memories and things that you're attracted to. And that you feel are powerful and that resonate with you. And I think if people try to listen to those things and follow those things, I think they will find as hard and elusive as that path is. I think they will find the right path if they listen to those streams. You know, I mean, we have a lot of things which which do guide us in the right direction if we can manage to open ourselves up to them. We're we're not blanks, uh, you know, uh, blank slates, tabula rasa that are just you know thrown into the world, and we have no connection to anything. I mean, clearly we do, and I've noticed that if I've followed a strong spiritual, or or even not, it doesn't even have to be spiritual. It can be something very elusive, just an image or 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 a clue to something. If I just follow these things, which I sense or or have sort of very vague memories of i've been on the right path and they've always led me down to to where i'm supposed to be going now the india thing is is um is such that i i think we have a lot to learn from india and i think it's an admirable tradition but at the same time a lot of water has flown uh, you know between us and Indians and we are not them and it would be foolish to try to adopt the outer appearance or the uh, the outer trappings of a culture like India Europeans cannot become Indians and and Hindus you know we kind of have to rediscover that thing for mm-hmm. ourselves and that was my main reason also you know for returning in a way to my own spiritual tradition because i i just realized that this is not my i mean this would be open for me now to do but i i'm ultimately not an indian and i have a family here i mean i I have roots here i belong here and europe is my family and so it's it's this thing we have and, and, and that's a much more difficult path of course but that's the path i've set upon and holy europe is sort of my honest attempt to point towards something and i'm not even claiming that i've i i have you know i have the absolute truth and when you read this book you're gonna like find it and it's easy and it's not easy it's it's a very difficult thing we are a lost people 
We're a culture that is facing many inner and outer enemies and problems and dilemmas. But I am trying, <clears throat> I have made a sincere attempt to, to try to point to the fleeting divinities of our culture. Because as you were talking about colonizing and, and things like that, Europe has always been a very sort of, or for a long time, it's been a very externally oriented culture. So we've always expanding, you know, conquering, going beyond and, and doing this sort of Faustian thing. But at the same time, we've sort of ignored and forgotten our own soul or mm -hmm. our own spirit or displaced our own spirit. And I think that soul has to be reclaimed and, and uh, found again. And it has to be listened to and it has to be given a voice again if we are to survive, you know, as, as peoples and as a culture and civilization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of, of everyone. That's true of everyone on the planet, but I only have my own kind of my own myself, my own perspective on things to, to judge from. And, and I, I, I clocked fairly early on that it was actually much more honest to just be clear about where you were coming from genetically, culturally, and embrace that rather than where tr try to pretend to some be something else, which is a much a much easier politically. And I think what kind of what you were touching on there is I was what I was thinking is one of the easy one of the reasons why it's much harder to look at the sacred tradition of your own background is when you are a tourist in somebody else's world, which is ultimately kind of all you can be, you know, for instance, in India, and you're looking at those traditions and it's not, you don't have a political stake in it. Not really, other than the fact that you're a Westerner in that world. I mean, that's, a, that's another question, but you don't, you don't really understand the politics of where you are. And so for that reason, it's easier to kind of look at just the purely technical or spiritual aspects of something and and often sometimes have a clearer view on them because of that but as soon as you begin to assess the spiritual heritage of your own background well that you're politically invested in and that means the nature of everything around you and obviously this doesn't apply specifically to Europeans, it applies to everyone, to everyone. I mean, you can't divorce everyone that you see around you from that history. You can't divorce political battles that are happening now in the media sphere or the political sphere, often, you know, arguments or lines of division within your own family or your own family history. And, and, you know, one thing that you know, I, I've been spending a lot of time going back into my own family records and history and finding, you know, all this stuff that I had no idea about, like that, for instance, you know, my, my ancient distant ancestors were, were snake worshiping, vanier worshiping pagans and things like that, which is pretty awesome. But these are things that my, my family has no conception of because partly because the information wasn't available until recently because of genetic testing, but also because at least in America, and I think Europe also, people are very much encouraged to be tabula rasa, as you put it, to essentially have no connection to anything else, to be a, a blank spot for global capital to write on, to use as a human resource, to move around the world as essentially a 
you know, just a, a movable resource, just like it was capital flowing through the market, you know, and that is obviously for a reason because people who have, you know, totalitarian governments always or systems always go to great lengths to cut off the connection of people from anything that is not them. And, and that is true across the entire political spectrum and in, you know, in our current kind of capitalist, neoliberal, free trade world, whatever, whatever it actually is. It is not, you know, it, we're in this kind of strange place where it is, people have been utterly cut off from their heritage, their roots, their families, their backgrounds, their own identity as anything separate from the forces of capital, except that there is this strange loophole in our culture where as long as it's a product that you can buy, then you can have it. You know, you can buy the trappings of your culture. You can buy books on it. You can buy, you can consume, it can be, as long as it's an experience that you can consume through capitalism, then, uh, you know, unlike perhaps in communist countries, you can have at it, but otherwise, but even that is, that's not real because it's not, it's something that you've consumed. It's not organic. It didn't come out of your own family essentially. So yeah. So, so there are, when you, when you return to that, there are political battle lines that are immediately discovered and are inescapable. And, and I'm just kind of expressing my thoughts of what I was thinking as you were saying and then suddenly it becomes much more real for better or worse no that's that's very true i mean um talking personally i think journeys in the kali yuga was much less a political or you know it didn't have as much at stake as you said exactly for the reasons that you you expressed you know like my, i can't really i didn't have i can't take part in India in that way. But when I write about Europe, which, you know, that's my home and, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, I am from Finland, but genetically I have uh, ancestry also in the wider Northern European uh, sphere. And, and I also don't, I don't think that you're just like defined by your genetics. I think you're also, you know, spiritually, you're you you're essentially spiritually defined as a person i think and i am a european i feel a kinship with all europeans all the way from the northern you know icy slopes of iceland to uh, southern sicily you know i i can feel a can a cultural historical kinship and a sense of uh, communion with Europeans um, on a spiritual spiritual level, and I think that's the holy Europe that I'm also trying to express. And it's also like it's my home; it's the home of my families and my 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 family and my grandparents and things. And yeah, of course, the, then when you're trying to capture something of the time that we live in, and that you are invested in and you know i have uh, you know i'm a father and stuff so i i'm also thinking ahead of how things will go in the future there is a point where you have to you have to put your foot down and you have to say things 
um, which you think are true, whether or not those things align themselves with the current accepted opinion. And that that is certainly the case with this book, Holy Europe, where I did try and I, I do try to keep it on this sort of higher higher level and I try to see nuance in things, but I cannot not comment on things that I see. Like, for instance, when I'm traveling in a city, I'll have to d- describe that city. And the way that I describe that city or the people or what is happening in that city or events that takes place in that city that will immediately, I mean, that will evidently be political. It's sort of in, inescapable because how you frame it and how you express it will be, you know, it's going to be from a perspective that's informed by your uh, subjective understanding of things. So, yeah, that that is inevitable. And I've, I've just tried to not get dragged down into the mire of these party politics and on which side you are of on on things and stuff but i i do express controversial in in today's terms like ideas or or thoughts reflections in this book but surprisingly it has been appreciated by you know both the right and the left so it's been sort of all across the board that the people have been able to uh appreciate what i'm trying at least to to do i don't know if i'm successful i am but at least i'm I'm trying to do something which which would not be divisive you know and uh, and not sort of drag down and then the other thing you said about um how all these um sort of capital or totalitarian governments always suppress these spiritual traditions i mean that's incredibly true on both sides of of the political sort of spectrum whereas like in communist states which i write about you know i write about this quite a bit uh with regards to the baltic states in my book is that you know people who even sang songs these ancestral holy songs about their gods they have this tradition in uh, lithuania and latvia of singing these dinas which are these sort of long um, um god god chants they sound like a little bit like indian traditional songs in a way i mean these people were sent to the camps to forced labor camps in siberia and you could not practice paganism or your ancestral faith in the baltic countries when it was ruled over by the soviet union and that became true in that was very true in estonia Lithuania and Latvia, which which I visited and which I write about extensively. But it was also true in uh, National Socialist Germany. Like people always connect paganism or Nordic paganism to the Nazis. And that's really misinformed because the you know the, the Nazis they had their own ideology, which was kind of which was national socialism, which was a new ideology coded with trappings of paganism but it wasn't paganism it was a a political totalitarian ideology and as an example of this i write in the book about how for instance runologists meaning people who explored runes in an academic or magical sense 
the 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 people who explored those things in the wrong sense were sent to the camps, like uh, Friedrich Marby, who was the developer of this sort of runen gymnastique, uh, kind of rune gymnastics, where you, like runic stance, they take these bodily positions and things, and a lot of these people who were runic mystics in Germany in Nazi Germany, they were not accepted at all as a part of the the you know situation even a lot of them who wanted to be some of them who wanted to be part of the uh the system or the the national socialist regime they were not accepted you know sort of nature mystics and stuff so it's very true what you say that the the this kind of um spiritual tradition or ancestral tradition is kind of a force that is always suppressed by these totalitarian governments yeah and i i think that that's i just think that's a very straightforward mechanism there's not a whole lot you don't have to dig very deep to understand that it's not like conspiratorial or something like that it's just simply that totalitarian governments don't like competition for people's attention or de ultimately devotion but so anything that's taking people away from complete immersion in the state is to be dispensed with in under totalitarian regimes and and ours is a little different in the sense that you know it can be sold <laughs> but in traditionally totalitarian governments it's just it's just you know the the mob doesn't want competition yet at the same time will happily take on the trappings of essentially people's pre-existing beliefs in as much as they can to manipulate them and it, it's clearly that was true about national socialism it's clearly true about putin which we can talk about and but it's also definitely true of you know at least you know, europe is more secular now but it's definitely true of america in the sense that in the sense of you know people like george w bush claiming to be you know christian crusaders while they you know just completely destroy things and raid raid oil and you know every every american president has to pay you know, consistent lip service to what a great Christian they are. They don't, but of course they have no interest in it. It's, it's merely to manipulate voters. So, and I think you can make probably the argument that American Christianity has about as, at least in the, the broad political and commercial sphere has about as much to do with, with Christianity as perhaps national socialism had to do with traditional Nordic paganism. It's just a kind of monstrosity created out of pure expedience. So maybe this is a good time to segue into talking about Russia because that was, at least in theory, kind of what we were going to talk about on the podcast. So I did no, see... I think, I, think, I think this is a good, I mean, this is a good, uh, you know, uh, starting point to yeah, discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I don't want it to be all about, all about Russia and current things. And, and like, I think it's good that if people listen to this, they will sort of understand my background a little bit or where i'm coming from what my what, what informs me you know yeah definitely and i saw you post on instagram kind of that you know this moment of you know russian invasion of ukraine is obviously a shocking moment for everyone but is also kind of a moment for european people to people in europe to assess what being european means and that's that's a good place to hop off on but also you know we were talking about how regimes use ideology and of course part of the putin regime has been to use 
you know, against all odds, the ideology of traditionalism and Duganism. And that has been, I think, essentially a propaganda tool for manipulating people in the West in the sense. And I think that, you know, my, my take on the Russian style of information warfare or propaganda is that it's probably not that different from American, which is essentially they just seize on every dissident element of a society from every single political aspect and then, you know, amplify and, and, and accelerate that to, to sow division within the country. And I think that was true in the sixties. It's true now. It's just the, the political lines change a little bit. So I don't truly think that Putin has any investment at all within this kind of Duganist vision of a traditional Eurasia or, you know, a, a, a revitalized Eastern Christendom, but it's certainly a propaganda tool that they use in the West and they use online. And as I think we were talking about on social media, a lot of people have got taken in by, so maybe that's just a good place to talk about it. But also, you know, the most pressing thing is you're in Finland, which borders Russia. And so this is not abstract for you, you know, Finland and Russia and Finland and Russia have been to war before it's, you know, I, I imagine, you know, exit quite, much more existential for you. So the first, the first thing before we get into all of that, the first thing that I'm most interested in is what is it like there? What is people's mood? What is the sense in Finland? Are people worried that there is going to be Russian incursion? I, I just, you know, if you can kind of paint for the listeners, what, what that's like, I, I would love to start there. Okay. When, uh... I'll start with this. When I was, we have mandatory military service in Finland, right? For all men. And this is because of Russia. Sweden doesn't have mandatory military service as, as we do. When I was in the army, when I was 19 years old, which is over 20 years ago, they kept talking about the enemy. You know, there was all this talk about, you know, when you when they would have lectures on, on strategy, on, on what to do and things, there was always talk about the enemy. And at some point, somebody asked, who is the enemy? And the captain said, or whoever, I don't remember the rank of the guy, but he said that the enemy is the same one for us that it's always been. And pointed east. So for us, Russia is the perpetual, you know, enemy in a way. And I, I, I always thought like my whole, most of my adult life, I thought that was perhaps exaggerated and outdated. I didn't really believe that that was the case. I wasn't worried, but you know, three weeks ago that changed. And now I realize that that is a reality still. And like more urgently than any at any point during my lifetime and i think that same sense of uh, of this is very prevalent among the finnish people people are clearly very worried for a reason i mean we have an unpredictable um neighbor an expansive neighbor that has a history of overtaking areas which previously have belonged to them. 
And I don't think that they've ever quite sort of given up on the idea that, you know, Finland was once part of of Russia and, and so forth. So I think the general sense is a kind of... Uh, is a kind of awakening to to the reality that yeah this this is where we're at sort of again and we need to be alert so so i think generally i think there's some fear and anxiety and apprehension about that a lot of people are contacting the military you know and going into training and doing these kinds of things and looking into like having food if there's a problem and all these kinds of things so it like people are sort of looking into practical ways of, of <laughs> sort of preparing for the worst now i don't think that i i don't necessarily think that anything's going to happen but i do think it is a possibility because we are in a volatile situation we have a superpower as a neighbor that has threatened nuclear weapons and that has threatened with you know un, un uh, what was it what was it the expression that putin used like never before seen consequences mm -hmm. if if sweden or finland would join nato so the, this is clearly a real situation that we need to be uh, aware of and just as a historical um, sort of analogy, you know, like I remember the way that my grandmother viewed the Soviet Union, which it was then when when I was a child. It was not a very pleasant way that she she viewed them, for a very very good reason. And my father was, you know, had to go into the bomb shelter when he was a kid when they were bombing Helsinki. My mother was sent as a child uh, to Sweden abroad, you know, for, for uh, was it three months or something, where she forgot how to speak Finnish, probably because it was a traumatic experience for her as a child to be sent to another country to completely, you know, strange people to be taken care of in the countryside of Sweden so that she would be safe. So, I mean, these are real memories that, that live on, I think. And... Um, yeah, there, there is certainly an apprehensive uh, atmosphere in the air. And I think a lot of people who live more far, you know, farther away from, I mean, there's a, there's a, somebody said that the, uh, that the bear, the so-called bear looks all the better, the farther away <laughs> you are from it. And unfortunately, living next to it, I don't, we don't have that luxury here. And especially when that bear has nuclear weapons. So, I mean, the, what can you say? You, you have to be prepared. And I am very disappointed by a lot of elements uh, that I see on the right who are very sympathetic towards Russia. And I see that it is sort of, it, is, it seems like most of it is just motivated by this sort of ultimate resentment towards uh, the US and they think that everything is about the US and US is like the 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 motivator of all these things that are happening US has provoked the invasion of Ukraine as if the Ukrainian people 
wouldn't have a will, you know, uh, to action themselves and wouldn't, wouldn't be sort of, they are also a player in this. They're not just a pawn of some global, two super global uh, superpowers. So I have been quite disappointed when I've seen this thing where it's like people are rooting for Russia uh, and thinking that Russia is some sort of great liberator. <laughs> and I can tell people it's not. It's not a great liberator. And Putin is not going to liberate you. And he's not some based superhero. <laughs> you know, like it's, this, is, this is nonsense. And, and I find it stupid and uh, offensive, to mm. be honest. Yeah, that's, I've been kind of, I really have been thinking a lot in the last week, partly because we're going to have this interview, but also just in general in the cultural moment, just like really sitting down and reevaluating how much my reactions to this have been kind of un inappropriately on autopilot let me let me put it that way and what i mean by that and i really started thinking about this i i think my my basic political outlook for pretty much my entire adult life like like a lot of americans my age i think was pretty much when i look on it in retrospect formed by noam chomsky and people that his opinions had formed formed like bill hicks for instance but i remember you know, like kind of the basis of my political outlook on the world is I remember reading an essay by essay by Chomsky in when I was 17, where he basically says that America to function as an empire always needs an external enemy or we our internal divisions cause us like we can't we can't maintain a global empire without an external enemy. And that since the Soviet Union fell, kind of the assumption that Chomsky makes is, well, the there's the world is peaceful there's no need for war yet we still need to justify the american security state so that america has been looking around since the 80s for external enemies that can fill you know since the late 80s that can fill the role that the soviet union once did and he points out that, you know in the late 80s people probably don't remember this but it was latin american drug dealers like manuel noriega and then you know, later it became, you know, and also domestic drug dealers, but later on it became, you know, the war on terror and, you know, Chomsky's, basically Chomsky's point is that all of these are largely manufactured, that there is no, I think as, as Bill Hicks later put it, the only, he said this in the early nineties, the only countries that conceivably pose a threat to America are the ones that we arm first in order to justify going to war with them. And then, you know, everybody gets rich from the defense contracts or the oil or we're justified in invading. And I sat down and thought about it and I realized that like, if I really look at it, that's basically been my political outlook for pretty much my adult life. And because of that, I've always been immediately cynical about any conflict that the West gets into or, you know, my immediate reaction to, for instance, saying hospitals are being born, bombed in Ukraine as well. You know, they told us that infants were being taken off incubators in Iraq, and that wasn't true. And they told us all, you know, it's like, it's more, more, you know, they're just trying to manipulate us into war again. Who knows what's really happening? But I sat down, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is actually not appropriate. Like, maybe I need to sit down and, you know, reassess my fundamental thinking on this because, the reality is, is that 
that's not necessarily the case anymore. I don't think that you can, I mean, yes, you can kind of make the argument that Russia is responding to NATO incursion, but I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty clear cut at this point who the aggressor is. And it seems, you know, as you say, in the last three weeks, we've suddenly been put into a probably a completely new world where all of a sudden we're it seems like World War II again and nuclear weapons are back on the table. And so this kind of, so suddenly it's like this feeling of being jarred out of this kind of spoiled era of just, oh yeah, everything's fine. If there's conflict in the world, it's it's just America's fault. And ironically, I think as you're pointing out, there's a real, you know, ironically, there's a real kind of arrogant and perhaps you could even say, kind of nationalist or even ethnocentric view of that where it's like if anything happens in the world good or bad we did it and other people don't have agency and like you said about ukraine's like that's ridiculous you know it's like it's completely ridiculous but that kind of assumption has been with a lot of people maybe it comes from chomsky or or what it's like if anything goes wrong well just america secretly did it and i just don't think that's the case and so i've really been sitting down and like thinking about just my immediate reaction to it. And I was kind of, even on Instagram, I was kind of posting some cynical memes about it and things like that. And it's like, then I started to think about it. It's like, well, what do I really, you know, I, what do I really know about this? I don't, I don't think anything can be taken for granted anymore. And I think your point about people being driven by resentment on the right is just, certainly in America, definitely true of people on the left the you know the the ideological left not the middle of the road left and there is a lot of kind of just well as long as as long as it hurts america it's good but that doesn't quite look the same now as it might have a few years ago i don't know yes yeah, somebody pointed out that the the sort of uh and all by the way, when I say right, this is a huge term, which means a different thing in America on a mainstream level than it does in Europe. And then there's all these like, you know, traditionalist rights or the dissident right or whatever. I mean, they, but the, a lot of these people who are on the right and are pro-Russia, they sound like, you know, somebody pointed, I don't remember who it was, who said to me that they sound like the 70s leftists. You know, like in the same way they have a resentment towards the U.S., which is so great that anything which hurts the U.S. is good. But, uh, I mean, I do find it really interesting that we live in a time where we can follow a war through the media, like live, and we can see the massive propaganda, which obviously exists on both sides. Now, this is, this is the, the difficult thing. It's like, it's really hard to get true information because we live in a time where reality is constructed and whoever controls the narrative is really, you know, that's the, that's the winner who gets the story. And so neither, of, neither the Russian, obviously neither the Russian or the, the Western media is unbiased or, yeah. or sort of reporting on things you know, there's, there's construct. Did you see the thing about the, there was a, like all these deep fake things where it's like constructed talks about Zelensky. No, the Ukraine I, I saw that yeah, people like, were putting up like clips from video games and, and claiming that it was, yeah, that, that was one of them, but there was another one where it was, well, it was a constructed video 
of the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, telling uh, like uh, Ukrainians to surrender, <laughs> and it, it was fake. Wow! But this is this is a time we live in where you you have to be. You cannot trust what you hear or see, even on on these you know videos. And I mean, it's all. It's a very difficult thing to to see what's going on, and and and, and to add about this, what you said about this resentment and stuff. It's I, I was listening to your podcast. I don't remember what it, who, what episode it was, but you were talking about conspiracies, and you said I don't remember quite how you put it, but you talked about conspiracies are these people that people. Uh, these things that people construct so that they to explain why they have no power, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I think this is the same like the the same people that are now saying you know taking the pro Russian side are the same people who had the COVID con like complete uh, COVID conspiracy theory sides to things during the pandemic. Which is not to say that I I wouldn't have been critical, uh, you know, of of the measures taken against COVID myself, but just this sort of you know complete conspiracy stuff about these things. Now that it's like the the same sort of logic is applied to to this conflict, to this war, where it's like, oh, it's all it's all put up by the, the US and it's all manipulated. And, and it's ultimately saying that, you know, they don't have any power to say this. And the, the, the countries that are involved have no power, no, no um, agency. Right. And I think, I think, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's a good position to have. And I'm not going to speculate on, you know, what Putin is thinking, but what is clear is that he does have interests, you know, economic, cultural, political interests of power relating to Ukraine. And he's being a gangster. You know, he's, he's trying to retake the position of Russia as an empire, whether that harkens back to the Soviet Union or the Tsarist um, Russia. You know, but people in Russia recognize this, that he's retaking their role as this big empire. And the idea that they're going to invade this country and just bomb the shit out of it, and that Ukrainians are somehow going to like accept that, like Ukrainians will never accept the Russians as their brothers now hmm. with what has happened. This, this will be a conflict that will sure. go on. You know, or even if the the war goes out, this will be a conflict between these people for a long time to come. I think, because what what are the number of casualties of this thing already? And the fact that people, you know, online, I, I by the way, I really dislike when people have these sort of uh, post snide memes and and all this shit. It's like this is it's like real human suffering. Yeah, countless yeah, yeah. people have lost their lives. Homes are destroyed, cities are destroyed. You know, a, a whole people's world is destroyed, and people are being like snarky online. That's such a cowardly, pathetic way of being, and I I don't understand why people behave like this. But <clears throat> I I do find that a problem. That you know, this will the way to to annex a country is not to bomb them. Like if these are your brothers and you're sending in Chechenian troops to overtake them, it's like okay, th this is not gonna, this is not gonna end well. And I've seen this thing where they should just, you know, the Ukrainians should just surrender, and it's the fault of all these 
ultra nationalists that they don't just surrender. But you like you you can't really just when a big superpower comes and demands something, you can't surrender. You can't just lay down your right. weapons and be like, okay, you take part of our country. <laughs> like that's not what that's not what Finland did. You know, and that and and when the um Russia attacked Finland, you know, everybody was like, okay, they're not going to, you know, this is not going to, they're not going to make it, but we did, you so, know, and it's like, it, it wasn't an option, like which side you are on or something. And and this is the same thing with this conflict right now. It's like, I don't really have an option, which side I'm taking. Right. And I have to kind of take the the side of the small guy here. You know, because I kind of like know how that feels in a in a in a sort of very deep cultural way. I understand the 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 small guy against living in the shade of shadow of this big empire. And by the way, I'm not uh, I'm not very positive towards the U.S. either. I'm I'm certainly not. I think both are corrupt superpowers, both Russia and the U.S. And I'm not rooting for either of them, either one of them. But in this case. It's not like we're under threat by America, where I live. You know, where I have a family mm. and a house is not <laughs> threatened by anybody else but a certain superpower to the east. Right. I think that that's probably. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to take the side that you're already on because there's a word for people who take the other side, and it's traitor. Right. So that's yeah. I think that the things are kind of that clear again. And why don't you, I, there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to riff on in there from on the, the, the propaganda front, but rather than doing that right now, I think I, I want to ask you about Finland's war with Russia, because I don't think that people in the U S really have any awareness of that history. And, you know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm even fairly unclear on it other than the fact that finland won and and had this, this the, is, the best sniper very, in world history but you know right okay well i mean we we have uh, been a country not for that long for like 100 years we used to be part of sweden in way past in history sweden lost finland to russia then we were part of russia and then um we finally gained independence and during the last war russia tried to take or did take um um annexed parts of finland which used to be karelia namely which used to be a part of finland and i think if people want to get a more general history of this it is very and this is very world history world war history so we lost a part of finland called karelia this is also you know where a lot of these runic singers and these spells and things survive the longest so these oral traditions the spiritual traditions survive the the longest in uh, Karelia, which which uh, was parts of it were lost to to Russia in the last war, and this is like one of those things where where people are like, well, you know, it's it's better to live in Russia, and Russia is a, a civilizing culture and things, and I mean, people say this like it's you know it's Ukraine is a poor country and Russia has a better living standards and all these things. It's like the living standard in the the places where which were overtaken by finland is not good i mean those places are impoverished and poor and and not very good 
and Finland has one of the highest living standards on the planet. So I think I know where I want to to live in this you know, conflict situation. You, you mean so the, I think, the parts of Finland that were were lost to Russia that are on the Russian side yeah, now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. There's a lot of alcoholism, displacement, poverty. Uh, just things being abandoned, they're shitholes, basically, like to put it in a very blunt, blunt and horrible way. But yeah, the, the, it's not good. I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't like me describing it in this way, but like compared to what it was or what Finland is, that's what, what it seems like. And uh, yeah, I, I have a sense that a lot of people like don't have an idea of what Russia is actually like. And I understand that people admire sort of classical Russian culture and old things. And I mean, there, there is so much great Russian classical culture, composers, art, you know, writers, all of this stuff that, that exists there, but contemporary Russia, if people think that contemporary Russia is somehow more, pure or based than the West or something. What is so great about contemporary Russia? Like, is it, what is it? Cheap vodka, crocodile, <laughs> right. like the, the massive poverty that people have there, you know, the, the massive difference in the rich and the poor in that country. Like, what is it? What is it? Techno <laughs> shitty cars or those, you know, videos that you see where people have car crashes in Russia, mm -hmm. like plastic furniture. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I, I think people have an illusion of what they think Russia is, which isn't the reality of Russia. And like these draconian measures that Russia has taken to suppress any criticism of, of these war measures, that's one of the aspects of Russia, you know, like the freedom of, of speech aspect, which is, which is a reality when it comes to, to this situation in Russia, that you, you are not you are not able to say whatever you want there without consequences, you know? Right. I saw a video. So I, I just, I think it's like people, like the people live under these illusions, these, you know, that this is the, you know, that the, they're the, the somehow more pure, but, but un the unfortunate thing is that they're not. And we, we can't escape this by looking for messiahs or these wonderlands, which only exists in fantasies. And we look towards these leaders, whether they be, you know, state leaders, presidents, and, and think that, yeah, this, this person is going to make it all okay. And they're not going to make it all okay. That's, that's the reality of the current world situation. So how was Finland able to beat Russia? And, and what did that look like? Well, it was very, um, of course, Russia, like, had a army that was way greater than Finland, but it's it's one of these things. Like, uh, I guess Finland had like Finland <laughs> had motivation. You know, they had motivation to fight for something. I think that's the same thing. Like in a way, I can see that in the Ukraine now. I mean, they're fighting. They're clearly fighting those people for something. You know, and it's when you fight for something that's kind of your world, then you really fight quite uh, hard, you know? Yeah, I think that's probably true across, that, that just seems to be an inflexible rule of warfare across any time in history, that and that cities are nearly impossible to take. 
and yeah, and it's yeah. and it's it's interesting, like this whole nationalism thing. You know, suddenly nationalism is uh, is no longer a swear word at all. And that is interesting, even among yeah. the left. Yeah, like it's it's uh, now all the, like <laughs> I can see all these Finnish, uh, you know, leftists on social media and stuff, and everybody's a nationalist. <laughs> Suddenly yeah, that, that is it's no longer yeah, suddenly it's no longer like, you know, there's no people and there's no it's all multiculturalism, <laughs> nothing. It's like no, suddenly there's very strong people. There there are people and they those people belong in a certain country. Right. And they right. have the right to sovereignty and to defend themselves and and you know have freedom and and to self-rule yeah that is interesting so people stop playing john lennon imagine you know imagine there's no countries they stop that real quick and very quick very quick and yeah. all and all this and all this like woke nonsense goes away immediately because people have real pressing concerns about you know survival and they have real fears so all this ultra sensitive nonsense is, is goes out the way because people are generally concerned about you know real things and not being offended by everything in the world all the time yeah it's going to be interesting i mean i don't want to say interesting because it's not going to be good but uh, just as a figure of speech you know over the coming months and potentially years because i think at this point the conflict with russia or looming conflict of russia is not going to go away at any point during our lifetime. And I don't think from here on out, there is not going to be a time when massive rearmament isn't happening. And that's unfortunate because, you know, we, we all wanted global peace, but that, you know, here we are, it's, it's, it's kind of like the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, but yeah, do you remember, do you remember I read you that little passage from, uh, Hermann Hess, Demian, written like over a hundred years ago. Yeah, do you do you want to read that on the podcast? Actually, that was great. Yeah, I could read that. It's it's like uh, it's from Hermann Hess, a very famous uh, German author who was a pacifist, by the way, and he wrote this book called Demian, and he wrote this right after the First World War, and during one of the hardest periods in his life, his his wife had gone. Uh, was suffering from mental illness and and it was, it was like the whole world was falling apart when he wrote this and he wrote this this uh, novel Demian which is basically about sort of a an integration of of the the complete self and a, a, a sort of a finding of the the higher self or something like that which is represented by this external person in this novel but but there's a section that I sent to you uh Jason, that that sounds like it could have been written today. Let me just find it and I will uh, read it. Here it is. Yes, my friend, it has started. I'm sure you knew about our very strained relation with Russia. What? Are we at war? I never thought it would happen. He spoke quietly, even though there was no one else around. It hasn't been declared yet, but the war is on. Rely on it. Since that other time, I haven't bothered you about this business. But in the meantime, I've seen new omens three, new omens three times. And so it won't be the end of the world or an earthquake or a revolution. It will be a war. 
you'll see how popular it will be. People will be in raptures. Even now, everybody's looking forward to a scrap. That's how dull their life has become. But you'll see, this is just the beginning. Maybe it'll turn into a big war, a very big war. But even that is only the beginning. New times are dawning, and for those who cling to the old, the new will be horrible. So that's very uh, sort of suitable to our time. Unfortunately. Yeah, and yes. you said that was written 100 years ago. Yes, at the end of World War One. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you were reading that, you know, at least in the U.S. and on social media, people are you know, enraptured in a way. They're kind of treating it like it's a video game or a Marvel movie because it's not real to them. And, but I think it's very clear. And, you know, it's like we were talking about propaganda. It's like, it's basically the first war that's being fought on TikTok. We have TikToks about it. Biden briefed TikTokers in the White House about how they could help with the war effort, essentially. It's just bizarre. But it is clear to me you know biden has used the world word world war world war three or the phrase world war three many times now he's saying that he's trying to avoid it with economic sanctions but what people don't but i think that we are in war we are in world war three i i don't I, the only thing preventing us from realize you know it's we're just we're, we just don't want to believe that it's happening essentially maybe that's not a, i imagine that's not a luxury in finland but here it's still, people are just seeing it in the media, so it's just kind of unreal to them. But, yeah. No, I think, I think you're right, and it's, it's way more real when you live closer to it. It's, it's like there's no escape from it. You know, like I've, I've, uh, I've been to the military, I've done a soldier's oath, so this is a real thing for me. Mm. You know, and I have, you know, fam my family is from here and stuff, so it's, it's a real thing. And, like, and also, like, you know, that the... I don't believe for a second that Putin is any kind of traditionalist or something. No, no. And I don't, I, I think somebody like Alexander Dugin has very limited influence, if any influence on Putin, but he has an influence on, you know, the climate and on these intellectual spheres, how people view these things. And before we were talking, I sent you this uh, message that somebody had sent to him asking, does his view of empire include a, uh, does Dugin's uh, view of the greater Russian empire include Finland? And he answered, not now, <laughs> which, which like is, is kind of telling of something. What, what, is, what is your take on that? He said that same thing many times okay. or made similar statements many times when he was visiting Helsinki in 2014, you know, as a part of this pro-Russia anti-fascist coalition, whatever it was. You know, he said similar things to a major, or at least that was, was what was represented in one of the major magazines here. And he said things to that effect in the past. And he's usually for annexation of, of these, you know, smaller states into Russia. So I wouldn't be surprised. And if I was, somebody sent me a map of these different sort of, the idea of this, uh, these different sort of areas of geopolitical uh, power. And in this map, these Eurasianists, the, their view of the greater Eurasia, Russia, went straight through the middle of Finland and the Baltic countries. So I think if, you, if you're going to draw like a map of, uh, 
of things you should be quite precise i mean granted it was i'm sure it was like meant to be a sort of a general map of cultural spheres or something but you know like you have to be a little bit more precise than drawing maps like that go through countries right that that are sovereign uh, uh countries so i think i mean but these the, the point is that dugin is not you know he's not the only one that has these ideas but the, these kind of ideas about the greater russia about the empire you know about this great uh big power they've always existed and lingered in russia and also after the 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 uh, so the fall of the soviet union these have always existed and they have never truly gone away even when it comes to something like finland you know where we we have a long that was a, quite a long time ago already that that those these things you know happened but these things these ideas have never truly disappeared unfortunately yeah so we, we just we have to be realistic that and you can't and the thing is you can't really predict russia like that that is the the thing it is an unpredictable clearly yeah nobody saw no nobody predicted the invasion no. and when i travel i've traveled through russia twice and my first sense of russia was that it this is the wild east you know it it doesn't feel like europe it feels more like india hmm and you've been to india so you know you probably know what i'm talking about there's this we talked about this actually last time when we talked uh that there's this strange sort of logic in india how things sort of are chaotic but they happen yes. you know yeah and it's the same way in russia it, completely the same it's it's very sort of uh it has a chaotic and lively sense to it and and before people start you know thinking that i'm i'm against russians or something i i am not and as i said i i greatly admire many aspects of russian culture and uh, art and and writings and and painters and things and there's aspects of russia which are are great which you can see um and i have experience in russia i've tra- i've toured uh, russia twice I've been to St. Petersburg, Moscow, Kazan, and Ichevsk, which is very far already in Udmurtia, which is very much to the to the east. And I've understood the, the just how large that area is and how crazy and wild it is. And it is ruled by a completely different logic than here. But I do like the Russian people. They're very friendly. Uh they were very friendly towards us when we were there as Finnish people. They're very romantic people, way beyond the the extent to which Europeans are. And um, I mean, they're, they're, and it's great. And it's a very strange place. And everybody talks to you, and you know, you sit on the train, and and um, like we always went to our gigs. We we played. I played with this this band many years ago. This ambient um, sort of ritual ambient band, and. Um, we played in in Petersburg, Saint Petersburg. Then we took the night train to Moscow. We played there. Then took the night train to Kazan. Then took the night train to Ichevsk. And you know, every night people would come in the restaurant cart and you know, buy us vodka, and we would talk the whole night. And like, there would be musicians and Orthodox priests and and all kinds of like you know, strange local Russians who would help us carry our equipment and musical stuff and like just great people and very 
very wonderful and um and just very bizarre also like we ended up having a breakfast at the house of um kalashnikov hmm. you know like the rifle right right the 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 uh the weapon that's killed more people than the nuclear bomb really like the hmm. developer of that weapon and his grandson is like this hippie guy, the Shiva Shiva guy. And he was at our That's gig and, you know, gave somebody mushrooms, you know, and stuff like this. And, uh, and next morning we go, you know, to this sort of fenced off mansion in the middle of nowhere. And we're sitting and having tea and we realize, yeah, we're actually sitting at, uh, uh, at this guy's house. Who's the inventor of this Kalashnikov the Kalashnikov himself, the rifle. Yeah. And, you know, then he comes in and addressed in full camo, the guy, and he's like, you know, in his 80s. This was shortly before he died. Oh, he was still, this is Mikhail Kalashnikov, he's still alive? He was alive when wow. we were there, yeah. It, okay. was, it was a few years before he died. Wow. And he came in and started immediately screaming to everybody that we have to get out and we're like Russian spies, huh? you know, and we're all like, you know, long-haired, you know, weird musicians from Finland, you know, that have no connection to politics whatsoever. And then we all leave, and you know, as we leave, the grandson, who's sort of apologetic about his grand grumpy uh, grandfather, sort of hands us these Kalashnikov magazines, which we then look at, and it's like buy a bazooka to protect your home, kind of stuff. It's <laughs> that like, sounds like the U.S. Yeah, well, yeah, in that <laughs> way. But it's it's just my point being that, that Russia is a very wild and strange place. And there's a bunch of really good people there. And I feel bad that this uh, conflict is happening because it will turn a lot of people against Russians who, who really don't have a say in this situation. Right. That's one of the really big tragedies of this. One of many tragedies is, you know, the level of sanctioning that has had. They're basically just trying to cut Russia out or they are cutting Russia out of the world economy. And the level of this is, the, I believe, the most severe sanctions that have ever been issued by the U.S. Uh, and the EU. And people hear sanctions and they, it sounds to them like, oh, well, they get a like a black mark on their report card or something like that. But really what it means is intentional starvation. And, you know, Ursula Van Leyden said, you know, the point of these salvation, the, the point of the the point of these sanctions is not a deterrent it's not to get russia to stop doing this it's to destroy russia permanently and van Leyden said that and so obviously the russian people are already if we're already talking about abject poverty crocodile things like this i can't imagine what it's going to be like there for normal people yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but I'm sure that Putin was aware that this would happen. Like, I'm sure that he was aware that there would be sanctions. I think that he was probably surprised by the, the severity of the sanctions. I think they probably have, you know, surprised him a little bit. But what else can, like, be beyond military invention, what else are people supposed to do? I think right. it's like, you know, if that's the least you can do. Right for now, and yes. they're they're avoiding declaring the no-fly zone because Biden says, "Well, that will be open. That will be World War Three. That will be open conflict." Yeah. But uh, war's been going on for a while now, so we will see what happens. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, I want to circle back to Dugan, but one thing I wanted to ask before we have that conversation, which I think is important context, is. We were talking about propaganda, and obviously, it's very hard to tell what's going on on either side. There's 
obviously we have a full lockstep social media propaganda machine now in the US, but you know, I've been looking at Russian media like Pravda and I listened to Putin's speech at the beginning of the war and I I wanted to ask you about his narrative that they are denazifying the Ukraine which presumably he's talking about as a battalion and also his kind of take that they're liberating the as you touched upon there he's saying that they're they're liberating Russians in Ukraine from genocide I imagine you you have a much I I would like to hear your take on that propaganda take basically seeing being closer to it and your take on what Putin and the Russian state are saying there is their justification for the war. Well, I find it interesting that that uh, the Nazis are still somehow involved in all of this. Like right, right, right. on both on both sides, right. it's like uh, Russia is denazifying Ukraine, and everybody's talking about Putin as Hitler in the West. Yeah, it's bizarre and, on right. on seeing you know like you know, died in the wall, American centrist liberals rooting for Azov battalion on Reddit and things like this, where it's like people who were, you know, five seconds ago calling Trump Hitler and saying that, you know, that there's, you know, obsessed with Nazis in the U S and whites and all of a sudden they're, they're rooting for, for they're rooting for Nazis, presumably without even being aware of it. It's just, it's just another bizarre aspect of the conflict. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, what else can you say? I mean, the whole thing, I think the, the historical uh, precedent to um, Putin calling, you know, denazification and all of this, I mean, the Russia-Soviet um, Union, they beat the Nazis. So that's that's a historical sort of, you know, it's a reference to a history of invasion. <clears throat> and... Uh, but yeah, I do think it's this this sort of we still we still live, and this is also one thing I talk about in the book is that in a way we're still living in the post World War II era, like the 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 trauma and the aftermath of that war is still alive in this way where you will have a war seventy years after seventy five years after the end of the Second World War, and you still have both sides calling each other Nazis. Mm-hmm. Like, what what is going on? <laughs> like, it, it really? And I'm sure there are. Uh, I don't. I I just find this kind of a, a, a non-issue. There's there's. I'm sure there's so-called Nazis on both sides, and Ukraine right now can afford to to um, to be purist about who's a national. Like everybody who's Ukrainian right now is a nationalist. And that's as far as that goes, you know, and the Azov battalion, whatever the war crimes they've done, uh, which probably are true and they've done horrible things, which happen in all wars, they're still fighting and they're a fighting force. And that's, that's the sad reality of the situation. Right. And then Putin's bringing Chechnyans in. So, yeah. Yeah. That's not a good look. No. Yeah, that's that's. Although I've I've seen people saying this is perhaps exaggerated for to to terrify people as as propaganda, but it's still pretty scary. It, I mean, it it is pretty pretty. Uh, I think it's scary, and it tells you 
about what Russia is in a way. I mean, Russia is an empire. It's not a, you know, it's not like a, a country made up of a specific people. It's many peoples. So it's, it's an empire. I mean, that's what, what an empire is. And so what is the cohe what is the cohesive force now that binds Russia, Russia together together? I don't know what that is anymore. Right. And certainly there's the view of so this probably is a good time to talk about go back to Dugan because there is kind of this view that perhaps it's this kind of Duganist Eurasian vision. But I kind of doubt that. I, I think if anything, you know, Russia is is appears to be just a country run by organized crime. So if they're, you know, whatever, I think you were saying this kind of traditionalist viewpoint actually doesn't have a whole lot of power, but it does have a lot of power in Western intellectual circles. And, you know, it's been easy in the US to be a little bit cynical about claims of, you know, Russian influence or invasion, because since 2016, like literally, it has just been a nonstop drumbeat that anything that happens that cannot be controlled by the Democratic Party is Russian interference automatically, even when that is absurd. But at the same time, it's not totally absurd because clearly it is happening. And I wanted to ask you about essentially Duganism and how your view of how it has kind of infiltrated and infested various intellectual circles in the West. So I wanted to ask you about that and what your take on that is about the extent to which kind of the extent to which Duganism has infiltrated things, what it is, the effect that it has had, your take on the people who are were either working as assets or have been taken in by it. Yeah, I mean, Dugin is this crazy intellectual, very charismatic person, you know, with a Rasputin-like beard. So there, there's all these precedents to him also. People associate with him with kind of like a modern Rasputin, you know, which is cool. You know, you have this this kind of a strange wizard, <laughs> like who has the ear of the, the leaders of a superpower. Um, the thing is, I, I just think he's a, he's a kind of, how much he says how much Dugan says for shock uh, value and how much he actually is genuine about things is very hard to say. I can't say about his motivations. I do find him and his ideals at odds with, uh, with the kind of traditionalism that I would uh, subscribe to. I mean, I do consider myself some kind of pagan traditionalist. I, I've never labeled myself for anything, but I don't like, I think paganism is ultimate, ultimately about or, or the same as tradition. So of course there, that is an, in, in the, the idea that there is a perennial truth expressed in various, uh, you know, pre-Christian and, um, uh, or just spiritual tradition generally that there are spiritual traditions that as that that uh, give voice to a similar spiritual truth and that for uh, europeans this is manifested in the various pagan uh, pre-christian uh, spiritual traditions that we have and that those ultimately speak about some kind of truth but that is very different from being a russian orthodox imperialist you know, which is essentially just what what uh, what Dugin is. 
but I can't really say how much of an influence he has. I'm, I think he has has influence in the Russian intellectual circles in the Western for sure, uh, but but how much is very hard to say. And um, and yeah, I'm sure these these ideas have affected the fringes of some uh, political like political advocates both in russia and the the u.s like uh, steve bannon i mean there was a book about the what was it called the uh war for eternity hmm. did you read that book no i'm not aware of it this is this is a book about the influence of traditionalism on russian and u.s politics specifically of steve bannon on Trump and uh, and you know like because Steve Bannon quoted Julius Evola and something like that and you know in some article and stuff so this is a book that I, I would uh, you know that would be maybe interesting to to read about this topic by this uh, guy uh, let me just see the name got too many books Jason Benjamin Teitelbaum and okay it's called uh, War for Eternity and he has uh, sort of explored the subject of of the of the actual political dimensions of of these type of philosophies on politics uh, in the current age and i mean it's it's difficult to tell there there's certainly been weird things happening <laughs> in the last uh, 5 6 years or so that's for sure yeah well there's bannon but i i definitely saw duganists kind of infiltrating American occult circles as far back as 2013, 2014. And that was very strange because it was so clearly a completely external and bizarre take on things and so obviously planted. But that said, it's hard to say. It's like, it's like we, we can, it's, it's so easy to say, oh, well, someone's a Russian agent because for this, that, and the other. I mean, because they were, for instance, on rt well i i was on rt talking about the aeon of horus so it's like does that make me a russian agent i don't know i i don't I, I don't think so but that said i think that there are clearly i've definitely you, you can clearly identify people who are kind of russian propagandist agents duganists in western circles i mean obviously obvious examples allegedly i will say this is all alleged would be for instance richard spencer's ex-wife or Dasha from Red Scare, which is a, a far left podcast in the U.S., so it's on both ends of the, the political spectrum. It's all alleged. I'm not saying it. It's just, it's just, you know, it's alleged. It's um, so, but there are definitely people moving in in circles in definitely America, but it's always it always is at the very furthest edge of where people have pushed an ideology here. And that could be either far left politics, far right politics, chaos magic, you know, the, the, the outer extremes of the occult, but it's always right at the final edge of where a subculture pushes an ideology. Then you start to actually see Russian influence. And, and it's, I think, undeniable. And that is pretty... I, I guess obvious in retrospect, but pretty sinister. So I can't just, you know, out of hand say that there aren't these massive Russian troll factories or propaganda factories 
working, and I'm sure they're working in overtime now. You said the thing about the deep fake about Zelensky. You know, it's 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 pretty amazing when you think that it's easy to say like, oh, well, reality is totally manufactured by the state, but it's actually much more, you know, it's not all American propaganda. It's, it's much closer to Robert Anton Wilson's line that reality is the line at which rival shamans have fought to a standstill. So it's like, we're constantly being, right. It's like, we're constantly being bombarded by propaganda from multiple superpowers as you say like do do not have our best interests in mind and it's how anybody can keep the story straight in their head is kind of beyond me i think in and the response in america has just been well basically like just believe what we tell you and just have and then just keep it at that like trust authority and, it, I, and people go a, for that yeah it's this comforting is a difficult I guess. thing yeah this is a difficult thing because <clears throat> I mean, I also, I've been trying to look at this situation as objectively as I can and understand different sides to it and look at, look at all the motivations of Russia and what provoked it and all, all these, all these things. And I, I really, I do think that that is one of the most difficult things is just because we are surrounded by so much propaganda on on every direction that it is very hard to to really make out what's happening and of course like i also have i noticed i mean in myself this reaction like you know when everybody's starting to virtue signal about the same thing all at once yeah and it's every actor you know every hollywood actor is uh -huh. <laughs> puts a, puts the puts the thing on their profile and stuff you know, I'm kind of, a, I've always been a bit of an outsider. So I have this contrarian reaction to things where I think, well, <clears throat> so much of what the mainstream media tells you about things is a lie. Obviously that, you know, you, you, you kind of like, you have this reaction that this is probably a lie too, but not all things are lies. And, you know, some things are like that for a reason. You know, I think when it comes to this war, for instance, in, in particular, I think that's, that's the case where it it just you can't just uh i've tried to look at the thing but you can't it's it's hard for me to adopt any sort of contrarian position into in in this situation yeah that's where kind I of just, where where, where mm -hmm. i just find that this is a this is a real war which is displacing and killing a lot of people and destroying a lot of things and which has the potential to spread yeah and you can get a lot bigger do a lot more and 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 then the thing is like the you know we, we live in a time where it's it's strange it's people still put their faith in these political leaders of these corrupt empires you know this includes the us and russia and and think that th these things are gonna like say they're, they're gonna be the saviors of them that they're gonna make everything better and and Obviously, that's not the case. Like people will have to work in the shadow of these empires and try to make their own lives good for themselves. And nobody else is going to do that for them. And no political regime will have their best interest in mind in the current world, unfortunately. And the sad thing about this war nowadays, too, is that we have this whole nuclear war position, which is so utterly nihilistic. You know, it's it's like even during the Second World War, there were my friend Gerhard Halstadt, 
this writer and musician from from Austria. He he has written about this sort of Panzer materialismus, like this sort of Panzer materialism, how the the war became so much about matter and about stuff, about you know, like just you wouldn't it wouldn't be a war in terms of you go and fight somebody, but it would be war on this massive scale of material objects and weaponry. And that that is one of the worrying aspects about war nowadays, where it's it's it has no uh sort of honorable dimension anymore. It's just about utter destruction, you know, of the earth, you know. It's, yeah. It's very nice. Like mo- the the end of modern warfare is so nihilistic. Yeah, that it, is it, really under- and, and materialistic. Really scary. You know, it's not like you're going into you're fighting with rifles or something. It's it's not like that anymore. Right. That is really scary and and the probably what makes this much so much more severe because we we all have been living in essentially the held breath moment after world war world war ii where you know three generations have been saying you know never again we can never have a we can we can't do war on this scale ever again because now there's nuclear weapons and essentially the nato sphere of influence has been living in a kind of whatever you call it kind of pax americana pax europa where the force of the atomic bomb protects them and but now and and that certainly seemed to be the case after the fall of the ussr but now that's not you know we are back in the, the the specter of the war to end all wars i think for the first time in our certainly since the 80s and I think people who are younger now, millennials, certainly Zoomers, don't remember that and they don't have any context for the fact that people assumed that they were going to die in a nuclear war that killed everything on the planet. And that's the reality they lived under. And that was assumed. And, and people had, you know, in America, people had nuclear fallout drills in school, like as if, you know, getting under your desk is going to do anything. But that was the, you know, people were, grew up in the shadow of the bomb and it, we only felt like it went away because the Soviet Union fell, but now we're right back there and, and you see things like, you know, Russians openly shooting at a Ukrainian nuclear facility and it, it, it boggles the mind. So I think, yeah, I, but I, this is kind of what I was saying about my kind of knee jerk Chomsky reaction to it at the beginning where it was like, oh Yeah. But actually not, oh yeah, like actually this is not something to be contrarian about. It is extremely serious and could get much more serious. And at the same time, we are not, as you say, I'm sure Europeans have a much, much more of a sense of this than Americans, but you know, people in this war, including Americans, including Russians, are caught in the middle between two superpowers, neither of which has their best interests at heart. And so maybe that's a good place to just circle back to the beginning of the podcast and which is and 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 kind of like kind of what you were saying about spirituality and also in Europe how this makes will make potentially people reevaluate what being European actually means and what is special about it. And that is one thing that is true of, of war. I mean, it, it, 
really clarifies where people stand, whether it's what we're talking about or, you know, whether you're saying like every every liberal is now a nationalist on Twitter. But let, why don't we circle back to spirituality and and end on a positive note, shall we say? Yeah, let's let's I mean, obviously, this is difficult with uh, such a subject. But yeah, I think there. um like I wanted to say that it's, it, it is also good to think like things are not obvious. Like sometimes opposition creates a positive, healthy reaction. Uh, you know, there, there's like, we can think in terms of, I told you, I think this story last time when I was on your podcast that in the Baltic countries, these traditions, spiritual traditions in the Baltics, are sort of in a way much better preserved uh, and much more vital and sort of uh, living among young people and, and the youth especially and sort of much more appreciated than in Finland in a strange way. And I was thinking that that is perhaps because they were suppressed and because they were forbidden that those people actually uh, held on to those um, traditions that they had and thought that they were important and wanted to fight for them and to keep them alive. Whereas, you know, an exposure to 60 years of Americanization will sort of slowly corrode that sense of a people's own sort of uh, cultural inner life, if you know what I mean. Yes. And I think so there's, there is this problem that, that, I mean, neither are good neither the the american all pervasive cultural influence nor a totalitarian regime like i'm not really rooting for for either pa either party but it's good to consider you know do you know the german band uh, rammstein oh uh, yes heavy band? yeah yeah of course they, they have this song america you know and the video is like we are all living in america and it's all these like you know african tribesmen eating pizza from pizza hut and like uh, Muslims wearing Nikes and like, you know, like yeah, I thought it was interesting that, that, you know, the first thing that America did is it, with Russia is like, okay, you're cut off from McDonald's and Starbucks <laughs> yeah. and it's like, <laughs> it's, Too like bad. <laughs> right. it's like, thanks for doing us the favor. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not good. That's it. No but I mean, French fries. I, if if there is a is if there is a positive thing to this, and and they're always like there is, I mean, change is inevitable. We we live in a world. You know, Heraclitus, the the pre-Socratic philosopher of Greece, said that war is the king and father of all. And unfortunately, th throughout human history, that has been the case. That war is the force that shapes change and continents and cultures. There's never been a moment where this has not been the case. Now, that is not necessarily a good thing, but it's a reality that we have to live with. And if I can see something positive uh, about this thing, is the, the reaction of Europe to uh, the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine? Because I can see that people are taking this position that this is us, that this is an attack on a European country and the sense that we are Europe, this kind of almost speaks of an, of, of a kind of, um, of an emergence of a new kind of consciousness of Europeans, which I would gladly accept mm. because I think that this kind of small minded 
uh, you know, very insular nationalism uh, is not good. And if you look at the previous two world wars that were fought basically between brothers, you know, like in, in Europe, it was brother peoples fighting, mm-hmm. fighting indistinguishable from one another, basically. They had different languages, but that was as far as it went. So it's it's brothers fighting brothers. And I I would hope for a an emergence of a new kind of uh, of a of a European vision where yes, we are nations and we are we have our specific cultures and customs, but we are also part of a bigger cultural and spiritual uh, unity which has a sense of common history and destiny and kinship and that we can bond over that on a higher plane and not be and and understand ourselves as a as a greater power and perhaps this is a pipe dream but some someday i would hope that there would emerge a kind of a, a european uh, power to to um, to assert itself instead of being uh, between these sort of great superpowers yeah so i think if there's anything you know that i hope this might stir is that this might get europeans to really consider what they are who they are what they're ready to fight for and you know like so, there's a lot of Finns that have left to fight well i don't know a lot but there are some Finns that have left to fight for the ukrainian war yeah, 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 and and British so, so this and, is and like, so on. Yes, yeah, and other Europeans. So this is clearly something you know people feel for this. They feel that this is a fight that they're engaged. That, that this is like revolt, like has to do with them in some sense. And I think that is a a positive, expansive, uh, you know, feeling of a good thing to have. Because I would like to see a Europe where we can. Where we can p- get past these petty, cons- petty sort of small-minded concerns and and recognize our larger spiritual unity and connection with each other, which is profound and deep, you know. Which I've I've been very lucky and blessed to witness as I've traveled to Europe through Europe many times, writing this book and meeting people and at you know fires and and by holy trees and mountaintops and by lakes and and uh, sacred groves and just meeting people and being at these power places i've i've realized that this is a reality that exists throughout this old continent yeah and i think also i think that it's it seems to me extremely likely that this will at the very least revitalize the european union project because it's been clear to me that it's been kind of hanging on life support a little bit and in danger of falling apart post-Brexit, post-austerity measures, things like this. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects even just the, the, the politics of the EU rather than, which I don't know how you feel about, but and I, I don't necessarily, I'm not arguing for one side or the other, but it seems like there will be a, it would make sense that that would be, those bonds would be stronger. Yeah, I'm. I'm for European unity. I'm not necessarily for the European Union as it is, sure. yeah. because I think it's dominated by economic concerns only, and uh, its cultural vision is very economically dominated. It's not necessarily going to enrich the peoples of Europe at all. Right, right. But I would hope that a European Union would be able to emerge one day that would actually serve the people mm. and the countries and the lands of Europe. So in a way, I'm I'm pro and against. 
the, the EU in this sense, you know. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way about. Well, I, the best thing I've ever heard about you—you you must know Jazz Coleman from Killing Joke. Yeah, yeah. So he had a great line on this, where he said, "You know, he's against a new world order, or excuse me, he's against one world government, but he's for one world community," which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well. Yeah. Well, that's, can I read to you a little passage, which I think might suit? I sent you the same thing, and this is also from Hermann Hesse's uh, Demian, likewise. But I think it sort of sums up a lot of the, the stuff that we've been talking about. Sure. Okay, I'll just start sort of mid, mid-sentence here. And please excuse my poor English. All of that was merely superficial, just as the question of the external and political aims of the war remained superficial. Deep down, something was evolving, something like a new humanity. Because I could see many people, and a number of them died alongside me, who had gained the emotional insight that hatred and rage, killing and destroying, were not linked to the specific objects of that rage. No, the object, just like the aims, were completely accidental. Those primal feelings, even the wildest of them, weren't directed against the enemy. Their, their bloody results were merely an outward materialization of people's inner life, the split within their souls, which desired to rage and kill, destroy and die, so that they could, re so that they could be reborn. A gigantic bird was fighting its way out of the egg, and the egg was the world, and the world had to fall to pieces. Yep. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on that note. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Well, where can people find out more about your books? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so I, I have been uh, translating the book, uh, Holy Europe, into English. I will finish the translation during the spring, which in Finland means basically until summer. Okay. And uh, then hopefully the book will be published not very long after that. It is a quite big book. It's over 400 pages. It is a massive uh, work. Uh, I mean, there's also a lot of photographs taken by my wife. Uh, Justine Cederberg, which uh, which make it in, into sort of a talisman, which I also wanted to make this book into. So people should look for that book when it comes out. And my first book, Journeys in the Kali Yuga, is available everywhere where good books are sold. And people can visit my website at akisederberg.com and they can uh, look at my social media on Facebook and Instagram where I do public posts about things that I'm currently engaged in and podcasts and interviews and things like that. And I was very happy to talk to you, Jason. It's, uh, it's always good. We have so much in sort of similar experiences and yet your take is sort of, you know, from a different perspective than mine, but I can really appreciate uh, talking to you it's always good yeah definitely uh, and that was great thank you for being on it's a great conversation and let's definitely do it again soon 
Yes, take care. Sounds good. Okay, thanks again. Talk to you later. Okay.